One. And hello. Welcome back to another episode of Brunch, a podcast. Today, we got a very impressive guest. Um, but first, just to explain once again what we do here at Brunch, a podcast, we're talking to young doers, young grinders, hustlers, people who are doing amazing things, impacting this world at a very young age. And uh, today, I'm thrilled to have with us a man named Alex Law. He is 24 years old, and he is uh, running for Congress, U.S. Congress here in New Jersey. And uh, as I said, he's 24 years old. And if he wins, he would be the youngest congressman in the U.S. Um, and he's a very impressive guy. I can't wait to talk with him. Alex, thanks so much for being here with us. Very happy to, uh, to be on the podcast and excited to answer whatever questions that you have. Great, great. So one of the first things I really want to jump in with here is it's tough to not recognize a potential shift in politics nowadays and you know it seems like the traditional traditional politician kind of has changed you have a lot of those necessary qualities uh, of a successful politician you know you got great charisma you're a strong communicator you got a good look and it seems like all the stuff we've seen on TV now with the non-traditional players of Bernie Sanders, Donald Trump, Ben Carson, these guys aren't cut from the same cloth. So are you recognizing a shift in politics or are you just recognizing a shift in how the public responds to politics? Well, I think what we're seeing is um, a real shift in terms of people's awareness of how much big money, big corporations have been buying our democracy. And, and, and that really started with the Citizens United case in 2007. Um, and we've seen a period of historic levels of um, failure by Congress, failure by the government um, to enact legislation that will help all of us. And I think the public is starting to recognize that a lot of that comes from these sort of untraceable dark dollars that have been flooding into the political world. Um, so I think we're seeing a shift in people recognizing that the candidate that might have the most television ads, um, that doesn't necessarily mean that that candidate's the best candidate. And we're seeing people embrace grassroots politics, engaging folks one-on-one -on -one at their door, um, and that sort of thing uh, really, really resonate very well. Um, and I think we're also seeing a push towards uh, progressive values. I mean, you've seen the success of the Bernie Sanders campaign, people really seeing um, uh, the, the value in things like campaign finance reform and sustainable energy and, and uh, 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 student loans and, and uh, raising the minimum wage and, and things like that. So I think you're seeing two of these shifts kind of happening right now. Right. So a couple of things. Um, one, you're the first uh, candidate in New Jersey to formally uh, basically back Bernie Sanders. Uh, what is it you love so much about him? Yeah, so uh, first and, and still only person running for federal office has endorsed Bernie Sanders in New Jersey. And, and I endorsed him way back when um, he first announced this campaign, when people thought uh, he had no shot. Um, but I really believed in um, his message, uh, the fact that he walks the walk. And what I mean by that is, he says, okay, we need to get rid of these super PACs and this untraceable money in politics, and he's not going to run a campaign 
uh, that, that is funded by that, those people. people. And, and he actually has done that. that. Whereas a candidate like Hillary Clinton talks about that, but then her campaign is almost entirely funded by these millionaires and billionaires. So that alone was enough to get me to sort of um, endorse Bernie early on. And I've been very inspired by the way he's run his campaign, the way that he's engaged people, uh, the way that he's brought you know, tens of thousands of people together in, in areas across the country uh, to, to really you know, become activists in their democracy. Yeah, it is refreshing and it's impressive. Um, but you mentioned student loans, and that's something that's really affecting a lot of our listeners. Um, and you really broke it down well on uh, one, of the, one of the videos on your site. And once again, we're speaking to Alex Law. You could go to alexlawforcongress.com or his uh, Facebook page, facebook.com slash alexlawnewjersey. Um, but so one of the things you really do on your website is you break down a lot of the issues. And I really understood the issue with student loans way better listening to this. So basically, the banks are, are giving us a really poor end of the deal here, where we might be getting a 9 to 11% uh, basically lending uh, percentage. Uh, the banks are then in turn offering banks sometimes often less than 1%. And plus, banks have that bankruptcy protection, something we don't have. So how do, how do you fix this? Well, well so, so let, let me, me just, just clarify a little bit. bit. So um, I'm, I'm speaking directly about the, the, uh, the federal government and how they lend money. So right now, when the federal government lends money to banks, banks get interest rates of sub 1%. So we're turning our banks into charities. And then when the federal government lends to students, they're giving out rates anywhere from 6 all the way up to 12%, but like you indicated, often 9, 10, 11, 12 in that upper part of it. Um, and so essentially what we're doing is we're turning our students, our future, um, into profit centers. And, and to me, that's totally not okay. I mean, if you took the piece of the federal government that gives out student loans, it would have been one of the most profitable companies in the entire world. Um, and I don't think that the government should be profiting in the tunes of tens of billions of dollars uh, from lending uh, money to, to you know, uh, all of us uh, as we try to educate ourselves and make the United States a more competitive country in, in the global economy. So how do we fix this? Well, a couple of things. Um, we can look at making community colleges free across the country, which uh, would really uh, tremendously offset the cost of college at the very least taking two years out of that for many, for many people. Uh, but I think overnight, if we just change the legislation that guides how the federal government lends money, we can make sure that uh, students aren't getting money at more than like a two or three multiple of what they lend out to banks. Um, so that really keeps uh, that interest rate in a fair place. Hmm. Okay, so that that would really work very well. Now, um, I, I do want to I want to talk some more about some issues, uh, but I I want to start from the beginning and I, I want to backtrack a little bit here. So you're in high school. Are you someone who knows you're going into politics in the future? Is this your career? Were you running for class president? Were you doing SGA? What was high school like in that sense? Well, I didn't do any of that stuff. I uh, didn't really run for anything in, in high school. I, I would say I was a leader in my class. I did get, uh, uh, funny enough, the most likely to be president in the, the yearbook. Not that that means anything. Um, but I was tremendously interested in politics. And at the time, I didn't really know whether or not my future was going to be in politics or whether it was going to be 
in banking because at the time I didn't really know very much about banking and sort of the, the lack of morality that exists there. So I decided to go to business school after high school. I went up to NYU Stern. I studied finance and information systems. And I think that was a, a very uh, good decision for me to sort of get that business background, that business understanding of how the world works. But what I found there was a, a shocking disregard for uh, doing the right thing uh, in terms of how people were educated about the uh, banking sector. Um, the movie recently came out, The Big Short, and I described to my friends that sort of that's something that I learned all about in college. The only difference was it, it was told from the perspective of the bankers and saying how, you know, aren't the American public... Uh, just whiners that they're so upset that, you know, we crashed the economy. They need to bail us out so we can go back to making all the money. Um, and it was very upsetting to me and fundamentally altered, you know, how I thought my career, my life would go. And I, I determined that I would not go into to banking despite the fact that I got some very good job offers from Wall Street and decided to go do uh, strategy consulting for IBM, uh, which was a great experience uh, every Monday morning, I got on a plane, flew to some Fortune 500 company somewhere in the country, helped them solve problems, um, and then flew back at the end of the week. Uh, I did that for a few years and learned a tremendous amount about corporate America, uh, which I think is a background that has served me well in this congressional race. So let, let's dig a little deeper there. So when you're at NYU, is it really that the morals are that uh, poor, that you're really recognizing that it's like us versus them and these are like the tricks to the trade and we need to get back to this to this place where we're taking advantage was is that very apparent yeah it is i mean so it's not nyu i think nyu is an excellent university i think they hire world-class professors and um, one of my professors professor joe fowdy you can go look him up uh, uh leading uh, liberal mind in terms of um, finance and, and progressive ideas and and Wall Street. Uh, but uh, there were classes, for example, I went to uh, a private equity class where the professor walked in and said, I'm Professor so-and-so. Um, if there are any Democrats here, you can just feel free to leave now. Um, and, you know, everyone laughs, and, and, and that's really very unfortunate. Um, but he's Oh, yeah, yeah, totally true. And then, um, you know, uh, we had another class called investment banking, which virtually everyone takes because 95% of the people at CERN are aspiring investment bankers, which in itself is a, a real uh, existential crisis. Uh, but um, uh, in that class, the professor describes how, you know, these cycles happen and every time there's a bust, uh, you know, the government tries to put regulation in place. But, you know, bankers just write loopholes into all of those laws and, you know, pretty much go back to doing the exact same thing anyway and everyone gets to make money. And, and to that statement, you know, the, the lecture hall uh, erupts into applause because um, everyone's excited in that room to be part of sort of the inside boys club of the people that make all this money. Uh, meanwhile, me and probably a few other people are sitting there in horror sort of thinking, how did I walk into the Twilight Zone? Um, so... Very, very uh, interesting experience, um, but uh, uh, something I learned a lot from. So, basically, would you say that the reason why so many of our really strong candidates who are young and coming out of college, these bright, can uh, these these bright young men and women, the reason they're going into uh, banking is is it just purely money? 
Yeah, I mean, it pays the best. Think of it. You're 21, 22 years old, you get a job offer for $175,000 a year. I mean, very few people are going to turn that down. But you did, right? You received Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I did. I mean, I mean it depends, depends on, you know, where your value is. For me, it's not money. For me, it's helping people. So, you know, going to IBM uh, was the first step towards that goal for me. But, you know, if, if you come from a place where um, you've experienced a whole lot of financial insecurity in your past or, you know, just, you know, you're saying, hey, you know, I'm going to go into it with, you know, I'm going to be the good guy. And yes, I'll make money. But I'll change it from the inside, or I'll hold on to what I do. Uh, uh, a lot of people go into it that way, and then the culture of Wall Street tends to change them. I mean, it's a culture where seventy to eighty percent of your salary comes in your year-end bonus. So people hustle, 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 stack as much as they can to look, make their end-of-year report look as good as possible. They get paid their bonus, and oftentimes, then people quit. And then it doesn't matter if everything that they've done was actually terrible for the long term. Because they're gone, they're at a different bank collecting a new signing bonus, a new end of your bonus at a different bank. And the, the hustle and the goal for many people is you do investment banking for two years, you get someone to pay for your MBA, and then you transition into private equity, where now you're making two hundred fifty to $500,000. And very few of these people are creating value in our economy. Think of any other field where people are making $500,000 when you're an entry-level person. It doesn't exist. Um, and uh, it's... The, the point is, of what I'm trying to make is it's very difficult for people who have an opportunity to enter this field of extreme luxury, of being instantly opened the gate to being part of the 0.1% for, for people to say no. Right. It makes sense. I mean, it's, it's tough. And it's almost like an athlete who comes into the, to the pros, has that really great one year or two years, and then they sign that huge contract. And then it's almost like that's, you know, it's their retirement gig. You know. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, oftentimes you'll see people, you know, I mean, you work hard, you work ninety to one hundred and ten hours a week, and often eventually hate yourself. Uh, but yeah, you know, you'll see people retire at thirty-two. You know, they haven't started a company and sold it for millions, but they still have millions in the bank from hustling on Wall Street for a decade. Um, so I mean, there are personal benefits to it, but systemically, and that's how I tend to try to think about things. The culture of Wall Street is is bad for the United States. Um, the way that Wall Street can use their uh, enormous amounts of money to buy influence in our government is terrible. I mean, look, just this week, I think Goldman was fined $5.1 billion for some transgressions that they had. And think of any other industry where a $5.1 billion fine wouldn't cripple a company. And for them, they just shrugged it off. So it's crazy. It is crazy. Let me give you a stat here, a couple stats, because this could really speak to what a lot of the problems are, with especially uh, millennials who are entering the workforce. So Inc. Magazine recently uh, said uh, that a mere 31% of millennials said that starting a business was very important or one of the most important things in life, whereas more than half, however, uh, had a different ambition, which was just a stable job. Yeah, so, I mean, so, and that, that gets back to some of my policy ideas where we aren't incentivizing entrepreneurship, which has historically been the backbone of the American economy. Um, how we do that is instead of giving huge, huge tax breaks and tax credits and incentives to big corporations. I mean, just in my district alone, $1.1 billion was given to big companies in the form of sellable tax credits, aka just cash, 
because Apple or other even bigger companies will buy them at 92 cents on the dollar to these big companies in, in order to incentivize them to create jobs. When, you know, we can get into the weeds of the specifics, but the reality is the cost per job is often above 500000 and even close to a million dollars, which is totally ridiculous, astronomically terrible policy, which, by the way, my opponent authored. Um, but uh, how do we incentivize entrepreneurship? Instead of giving these huge tax credits to big companies, we should be incentivizing through subsidized loans, grants, or tax credits to small businesses or people that want to start businesses. Because not only are those the people that then sort of push the American economy forward in a macro sense, but in a micro sense, those are the folks that are actually going to hire people in the community that it's meant to help. Um, so you know, something very important to me, especially with Camden, New Jersey, one of the most economically distressed, if not the most economically distressed uh, municipality in the entire country right here in the first district, uh, you know, something I care deeply about. Right. Yeah, it, it really is a, it's a huge issue. But so let's, let's get a little bit deeper into, into you. So just to repeat this, so you didn't run for student government, you didn't do really any politics in high school, but yet you were still voted most likely to be president, which does say something. Um, and then, uh, and let's just say, also, I was voted uh, most likely to, uh, well, funniest and best storyteller. Just want to throw that <laughs> out there. So, uh, Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. I, I have that on my car as a little uh, bumper sticker. But, um, so, you're running for U.S. Congress. You're a young guy. You come out, and you really didn't, have your hand too much in politics. I mean, it's, you didn't really, there's some people in college who perhaps intern or volunteer for a campaign. Have you, did you ever do something like that? Uh, briefly. I mean, I, I helped out a bit on, on John Adler's 2008 campaign when I was in high school, but the reality is politics has been in my family for generations. I mean, uh, two of my great grandparents chartered the democratic party in Collinswood. My grandfather was on the school board for 30 years and, and then the mayor of Collinswood, and I wear his uh, Democratic uh, pin uh, every day. Um, and my dad was on the school board in Voorhees. So public service is always something I've been around. It's something I've thought of. It's something I've valued. Um, but part of my message, too, is like, you don't need to be a poli-sci student. In fact, being a poli-sci student probably doesn't position you very well uh, for, for politics anyway. Um, you could be anyone. As long as you're interested about um, helping people in your community, and you can give yourself the commitment that you're going to put the time in to do it. Anyone can can get into politics. And, you and when I talked, you learned no, how to go. I mean, that's yes, one of the absolutely. greatest. That's one of the greatest things about your stories that you just did it. You know, you were talking with a lot of friends who were upset about the climate of what was happening around you, and you basically just said, "I'm going to be a doer." And you went out and you learned on the go, and that's incredible. So right now, someone who is a little bit younger even than you are, uh, who may have the same uh, aspirations, what would you tell them to do if they really have zero background and they just want to get started? Well, well. so th this idea of you know anyone can be involved, it comes from this one of the most important quotes to me, something Teddy Roosevelt once said, which is, um, when we rule ourselves, we have the responsibility of sovereigns, not of subjects. Uh, and what that really speaks to is the idea that in a representative democracy, we can't afford to sit back and do nothing. When we want something to happen, when we care about uh, issues or policy or helping people, we need to step forward. We can't just wait for other people to do it for us. 
Uh, but, but if I was, was going to give a piece of advice to uh, someone younger who has an interest in politics, I would say a couple of things. I would say, one, this isn't like, hey, there's an election in six months. I think I can do this. Let's go. Um, while I wish it was that easy, and if I win, I'm going to put together uh, sort of like a manual because one doesn't really exist for how you do all this stuff to, to shorten the time as much as possible for people. Um, but uh, I would say, you know, you typically want to plan at least a year, if not two years in advance like we did. Um, and what you need to do first, you need to surround yourself with at least two, but as many as you can, people that are going to work uh, with you for free and help you advance this this whole thing. Because you can't do it by yourself. If you can't convince one or two or three or four people to believe in what you're trying to accomplish that are already close to you, you're not going to be able to convince 10,000, 20,000, 50,000 people to, to vote for you. Makes sense. The sec so the, the second thing I would say is, Test your message out. You know, create a website, put together your policy, and you should have policy whether you're running for town council, whether you're running for school board, whether you're running for Congress, whatever it is that you want to run for, think about your message because you can't go talk to people uh, about why they should vote or support or give you money if, um, uh, if you don't really know what you stand for yourself. So flesh that out, put it together, put together a website, put together some literature, and then go test it, knock on doors. Um, if you have legs... Uh, and, and you're willing to do it, you can talk to as many people as you want about your campaign. Yeah. Um, no one can stop you. A big portion of what you're doing. So, ju so just to clarify real quick. So you, you were working at IBM as a strategy consultant, and you, you left your job last June to uh, do this full-time. Yes. To be campaigning full-time. And the upcoming election is uh, in June seven. Uh, June 7th, right? Correct. Coming up. So one of the questions, I guess, challengers would have to you is, number one, you know, experience. You know, how big of a weakness is that? Um, how would you respond to that? Let's say it isn't a weakness, weakness at all. Um, so, so our district is, is something unique about it. Uh, negatively unique, but unique nonetheless. Um, we're the only district in the entire country that hasn't had a single bill written by a representative of this district uh, that's become a law uh, since 1991, uh, since all of us were alive. Um, so uh, for all the experience that Rob Andrews or for all the experience that Mr. Norcross have, they've done virtually nothing. Um, and what I would say is the excitement... So let me interrupt you real quick to interrupt you. So what would be... What would be a, a very respectable thing that we could expect? Like, what kind of bill would be passed at that at that congressional level? Just for because I'm I'm not aware of that. What would be what would be something? Well, think of any law that we have at the federal level. Someone sponsors it. Someone writes it. Someone puts it into law. I mean, it could be as big as the Affordable Care Act. Um, it could be as small as um, determining how. The government gives out money to fire departments across the country. Okay. It could be legalizing marijuana. It could be changing how the federal government deals with LGBTQ rights. It could be raising the federal minimum wage. So there's, there's not a lot of activity in this district in terms of really trying to do anything. Well, for, not that there's not a lot. There's zero activity um, in this district since all of us have been alive. That isn't to say that they haven't written bills, but it means that none of them have actually passed into law, which means they haven't actually done anything. And to put it in perspective, you know, you have some legislators that will pass, you know, 10, 15 laws a year. Some that will pass one or two a term every two years. 
but there are no other areas in the entire country where the representative passes nothing for 20 years. Um, and that's the situation, more than 20 years at this point, that's the situation that, that we have. And um, in terms of experience, all I can say is I know the issues better than my opponent. Um, I have better solutions than my opponent. And quite honestly, when we win, the, exci the excitement that will come with me being the youngest congressman since 1974 um, and the first elected person of federal office part of the millennial generation, I think I will be able to find partners in Washington that will be excited to work with me. Um, and we'll be able to get some stuff done. So, when you, so talk about those, those, the hours that nobody sees where when you are learning these issues, how does that go down? Like, for instance, somebody who wants to do well, you know, on a bio exam, you know, they go into the room and they open up a textbook and they start learning about biology. They go over the class notes. How do you even become more proficient in the laws and legal matters and all this politics kind of stuff to know more than the current man in that position right now? What are those hours look like? How does that happen? Well, see, I mean, everyone has a different path to it. Um, I think that, um, for me at least, uh, you know, going to an excellent public high school like Eastern High School was a great foundation, a great start. Having amazing parents that always pushed me to learn and always talked with me about sort of current events and policy and things that were going on certainly was part of that, you know, foundation uh, for me. Um, reading everything that you can, whether it's news or fiction or, or nonfiction, um, really broadens your sort of understanding for storytelling, your 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 knowledge of uh, historical issues and policy. Um, and, and I read probably more than anyone I know. I, I tend to read uh, probably at least a book a week, but sometimes two or three. Um, and, uh, you know, traveling. So living in New York was amazing, experiencing people from all over the world, going to a business school to get that side, that perspective, uh, going to school in London for... Uh, a semester and traveling all over Europe and seeing the ways that other people live, going to Singapore to study a company there, um, you know, traveling all over the world, not that everyone has that opportunity, but for me, that was an integral part of my education, and I would encourage anyone that could study abroad or travel uh, to do as much of that as they can. So it's really a mixed, um, a really mixed thing, but I think the thing that is consistent with anyone who has a good understanding of policy or, or subject is an intense curiosity for learning um, and not being closed-minded to say, hey, how I think of it now is the correct way and no one is going to change my mind about that. Um, I change my mind all the time as I learn more about new solutions and new ideas that are proposed. Uh, so I think that's, that's, that's totally, totally crucial. So looking to make this as a career and being 24 um, and really, you know, throwing yourself into this and devoting yourself, are you, is your goal president? Well, I, first, first off, I wouldn't even say that I'm trying to make this a career. I'm trying to win this election and help people right now here in the first district. And I'm someone that supports um, either a constitutional amendment or an act of Congress that uh, puts in place term limits so that we don't have these kinds of career politicians that are in it for 40 and 50 years. I'd like to see the limit on the amount of time you can serve in the House be five terms or 10 years and the limit for the amount of time that you can serve in the Senate to be two terms or 12 years. Um, so uh, I'd, I'd be... Nothing would make me happier than winning this election, getting term limits in place, and then, you know, serving my time in Congress, and then going on and doing something else. Hmm. Okay. Um, 
That's interesting. So that kind of answers why, because I was going to ask you, you know, being so young, starting off like this, why wouldn't you just run for city council or, you know, something municipal, something a little less uh, competitive, you know, a little lower? Well, there's, there's, there's a lot of strategic, strategic reasons in terms of, you know, winning in this area with a lot of corruption and machine politics, why, you know, running for, for Congress is the best decision. But the reality is I'm not in the business of making Alex Law a famous politician. I'm in the business of helping people. Um, and helping people, we can help the most people by winning this election, by cutting the head off the machine around here, and really putting ourselves in a position to create substantive legislation um, uh, through this election, uh, rather than taking the career politician route of, you know, running for school board, then running for town council, then running for freeholder, then running for assembly, and then hopefully having some rich person or machine boss tap you on the shoulder and say, hey, buddy, it's your time to run for Congress now. Um, that's not the business I'm in. I'm not in this to be a politician. I'm in this to help people. Do you think a lot of young people who are going into politics are that kind of have that same similar feeling or are they a little bit more into the career politician aspect i, I certainly can't speak for other people but what i can see what i can say is things that i've observed that at least in this part of the world anyone that gets into politics gets in it and just does what the higher up people tell them to do um, and that's an unfortunate reality that we have here in South Jersey and a culture that I'm trying to change. Uh, but I can't really speak for people across the country. I do think that Bernie Sanders is doing a great job bringing people into the political spectrum that are you know, in this to help people and in this to change policy rather than in this to be a career politician or in this to enrich themselves. Uh, one of the things that I really want to mention, just to, to give people an understanding of how special of a guy you are, because I've never heard of anybody that has lived their life this way. But um, so you do support uh, the full legalization of marijuana, but you have never used marijuana. And in fact, I believe I read somewhere that you have never used tobacco, alcohol, coffee, or any energy drinks or any other types of drugs. Is that true? Yeah, that is true. I mean, it's not something that I really talk often about or brag about. Uh, but in my personal life, uh, never had alcohol or, or any of those things that you mentioned. Um, and my support for legalizing marijuana just comes from the idea that it's, a good, it's good policy. It's good for the United States of America. I mean, we're seeing the institutional racism of imprisoning young black males across the country. Um, and then, you know, once they're part of the system, it's very difficult for people to get out. And that is the, the law that's often used for that is, is, is marijuana laws. And, and we've seen the overwhelming success in, in Colorado, when they've legalized marijuana, the increase in money for education, the decrease in crime, the emptying out of their prisons, it's been nothing but a net positive for that state. And, and we often think of in the United States as states being the laboratory for democracy. And uh, the Colorado laboratory is proving that it's, it's the right policy. And, and this is aside from all the medical marijuana arguments, which I think are a total no-brainer. Right. I just want to talk a little bit further about this because I'm a little crazy. But so... You've never had coffee or even a, a sip of coffee or a sip of alcohol. Yeah, that's correct. So, uh, okay, let me just break this down a little bit. So, you're, does a family member drink coffee? Yeah, yeah. Um, okay. So, you, yeah, both my parents. Yeah. So, you're at home, you know, you're visiting your parents. You're, they have a cup of coffee even at, at a young age. You're not, like, curious to drink that? Just to try no. it? Nope. 
Okay, so no, so no coffee. But then, well, the, 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 the way, way I thought of it always is that, like, um, uh, and again, I'm, if people use drink coffee, good. I mean, most studies show it's actually healthier for you to drink coffee than not. So you're probably doing the right thing. But you understand me, why I'm curious about this? Like, have you ever met another person who's never, who who who's done exactly what you've you've done here? Yeah, my brother. Um, but um, in terms of uh, with with coffee, it's just like. The way I always thought of it for me personally was, you know, it sucks waking up in the morning. And on those days, I was like, man, I wish I could, you know, some, have a little boost. Coffee would be helpful for me in this. I figured if I, knowing my personality, if I said, okay, I'll, I'll have coffee today, there's no way I wouldn't, you know, drink coffee every single day. And then in the afternoons and then at night. And it would just have become a whole coffee obsession for me. So I decided, you know what, rather than do it once, I'll just not do it. And then I never even think of coffee as a solution for waking up. Instead, I just say, hey, if I don't want to be tired, I just got to get a good night of sleep. Wow. Now, what about the the pressure of, you know, being in high school, being in college? I mean, you know, you're you're a guy with a lot of friends and stuff. You, you, I'm sure you went out to parties and stuff. The, the alcohol issue never came into to play i mean that you felt like you maybe need to try it or just nothing no i mean i i, I posted many parties probably before i should have been hosting parties with alcohol that had alcohol and i've been you know obviously you know most of my friends drink um you know it doesn't bother me at all um if they do in fact they love it because then i get to be their designated driver whenever we go out to philly to bars um but, uh, you know, it's just a personal choice for me that I decided that wasn't for me. Um, and peer pressure sucks, like, you know, for a year or two in high school. And after that, no one really cares. Just speaking upon, uh, about this a little further, because uh, it seems like a lot of people say, like, oh, I want my politician to be the kind of guy I could grab a drink with. I, I never understand when people say that. Why do you think some people say that? Well, because, you know, you don't want your, uh, your representative to be someone that you feel is unapproachable to talk to. Um, and when they say someone I want to grab a drink with, that's really what they mean because most people, um, you know, socializing, you know, go grab a drink at a bar. And I'd be happy to go grab a drink with someone. You, you, have, you have a beer, I'll have a Coke, and then we'll just, you know, split some wings. I got you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm happy to do that. All right. You're a busy man. we got a few more questions for you. Um, let me just hear what you think about Donald Trump. I'm curious. What's what's going on? Why is he capturing so many obviously he I mean we know why he's so captivating, but he's having a lot of success in the polls. Well, I mean so so we've seen this historically many times and, and what the term to describe Donald Trump is a demagogue. He's someone that is playing upon uh the fears of people um and allowing people to blame someone else for their problems rather than looking inward um, at, at their own decisions and, and their own lives and, and what's happening. So um, it's, it's historically been something that, you know, dictators and demagogues and politicians have been successful with in the past, uh, but it's a bad thing for all of us. He's fundamentally motivating people with fear, fear of people that look different than them, fear of people that think different than them, um, and, and getting people to forget that those differences are what make America the greatest country in the world. Um, so I think ultimately, um, even if uh, Donald Trump is able to win the Republican nomination, which I think it is is unlikely, I think we're going to see a Rubio or, or a Cruz um, win that Republican nomination. But even if he does, I don't think that there's any way that he wins the presidency at large. Hmm. Okay. 
Now, talk, uh, your grassroots campaign is very impressive. You've been knocking. You you have a, a goal of knocking on twenty thousand doors. No, we've, we've already, already done, done that. that. We, we did, did that in two months over the end of the summer into the fall. Um, we, we knocked, knocked on twenty thousand doors. In fact, there was a week where I was I committed to walking a hundred miles of door knocking in all fifty two towns in the district myself, which I did. Um, that was a great week for us, and we reached a ton of people. Um, our goal, actually, with the campaign is to knock on about another 100,000 doors between now and June, and that's a goal we feel we're in position to uh, be successful with uh, because of the plan that we've set up and the amount of volunteers that we have, and, and sort of, we've to get into that plan just a bit, I developed it with former Governor Michael Dukakis, and, and we've split up the district into zones, every zone having uh, a zone captain, and, and these folks are committed to engaging the people, and they're their area, their zone, um, a certain amount of times in certain ways uh, before the June 7th election. So we feel we're going to be very successful come June. And you think that um, you need about, you're estimating you need about 20,000 votes to really uh, win. Yeah, so, so our district has 172,000 Democrats. Last time Mr. Norcross for all his money, power, influence, etc., he got 18,000 votes, uh, spending a horrific, you know, over $50 a vote in that primary. Uh, extremely poor job by him and his team, and we expect more of the same from them. Um, so even if they keep all 18,000 of their votes, we feel very confident that if we can get 20,000 votes, we're going to be successful um, uh, uh, on June 7th. Let me ask you a question. Do we live in a world today where people are open to like somebody coming up to their door and having like a long form conversation? It isn't always a long form conversation. In fact, a lot of the conversations we had might have been 30 seconds, 45 seconds. People are curious. Obviously, we'll talk to them as long as they want. But um, what we wanted to instill in people is a sense of excitement so that, you know, they say we give them all the information. They can go check us out in the privacy of their home when they have time. But we want we wanted people to have an exciting minute with us so that when they go to the bar, or when they go get their nails done, or when they are you know chatting with their friends online and uh, you know someone says, Hey, what's up this week? How's your week been? Say, Hey, you know, it's been pretty good, you know, kids are good. Um, yeah, this 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 uh, Alex Law came to my door, very exciting stuff. I checked out his website, here's a link to it. Um, and sort of spreading word of mouth that way. What can we expect from you if you lose and what can we expect from you if you win? Um, well, uh, sort of, people ask me all the time, Alex, if you don't win, what are you going to do? And uh, all I can say is all my chips, you know, everything that I've got is uh, in the center of the table for this election, and there really isn't a backup plan for if it doesn't go well. Um, but what I can say is if, if we do not win, um, which we expect to win, but if we do not win, um, we will have done well enough in this that I'm sure opportunities will come up uh, in some way, uh, shape, or form for me. Um, now, in terms of uh, if we do win and, and when we win, um, you're going to see uh, something very exciting happen. You're going to see someone uh, who isn't bought, someone who won uh, a congressional election with very little money, um, sort of take this strategy, take this way of people mattering in politics and spreading that across the country so that other people, rather than having to go to rich people and saying, hey, give me money, do you like me? And if rich people like you, then you can run for, for office. Changing that so that anyone in the United States of America feels like they have a chance 
um, to run and represent us uh, in Congress or in their state legislature. So we're going to spread that. We're also going to be a tireless uh, voice in Washington for these progressive values and push in a way that you know other people that have to worry about donors um, can't. And, uh, and I am very excited uh, to do that and to partner with hopefully President Bernie Sanders um, come 2016. That's great. And one of the great things we do have to mention and I, I know you're going to be a, a, a little you, – you may not love that I'm going to say this, but BuzzFeed did mention and write an article about you that you are the hottest guy running for Congress. <laughs> How did you feel about that? It is just ridiculous, but um, it was it was a, a, a very shared article about us. Uh, so, you know, in that respect, it was fun. However we get people to start listening to our ideas, if they want to look at pictures of me and then they go click on our policy – that's okay, okay with me. me. That's helpful. It's got to be helpful, right? <laughs> uh, I, I suppose. I okay, suppose. great. And I mean, the, <laughs> lastly, a very important thing. I just want to throw my name in there. In the future, if you do decide to run for president, is there a chance I could be your VP? Just, I just want to throw it out there right now. Yeah, you, you know, know what? what? I'll, I'll just, I'll, I'll, I'll put you on the list. And when, when that happens, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll give you a call. How's that sound? That's good. At least I'm in there. Listen, Alex, thanks for spending some time with us. Everybody, Alex Law, you are running for U.S. Congress, alexlawforcongress.com, and also facebook.com, uh, alexlawnj. Alex, anything else you want to mention? Well, just what we always say is that if you want to get involved in this campaign, um, we always want people to be a part of the democracy. So go to the website, send us a message, um, and we will get you involved one way or another uh, because, you know, that's how our team has grown. And, and we'd love to have all of you as a part of the team here at the Alex Law for Congress campaign. Um, and, of course, uh, our campaign is totally built on the support of real people. Our average donation is, you know, around 20 bucks. Um, so if you've liked what you've heard in this podcast and you want to contribute, you can go to alexlawforcongress.com and click the contribute button. And any money that you give us, we're an all-volunteer staff. Everything goes straight into our grassroots effort to reach more people to talk about these important ideas. So I would certainly appreciate um, a contribution uh, if that's possible for you. So, Mike, thank you so much for having me. Um, I look forward to seeing all of you out there on the campaign trail. Definitely. And uh, if you win, maybe we'll share a cup of coffee on me. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Great. Thank you, Alex. And uh, Thank once you. again, thanks everybody for listening.